Well, good afternoon and welcome. Uh, I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders here, and um, it's great to be um, going through this series on introducing Jesus with you. Uh, a big welcome if you're here for the first time at church, or if this is even the first time you've been in a church gathering. Um, I realize in our culture, obviously, it's not a very common thing to go along to church, so that can be weird. Um, yesterday, I went along to a thing called Tough Mudder, and as people who go to these kind of things do, I find ways to work it in a conversation without you asking, so you're welcome. Uh, but uh, before they kick off the race, they're hyping everything up. But most people in their heads are just thinking through what is going to be on the other side of this finish line. You've heard rumors about electric shocks and all kinds of other stuff that's there, and you wonder what's actually going to be there. I, I, I could imagine that coming to church for the first time, you may be thinking the same kind of things. What's, what's it going to be like? Is it going to be a bunch of just average weird-looking people sitting around singing you know, Kumbaya or something like that with a guitar? But, um, but thank you for being here. And, uh, and I hope that more than, more than being just enjoyable... I hope, I hope uh, what we go through today causes you to ask deep questions about life and the world. Because we think that uh, that's who Jesus is. That he was the most extraordinary person that ever walked the earth and made the most extraordinary claims that anyone has ever made. But more than that, that there is actually good reason and evidence to believe what he said. But I wonder for you, whether or not you think uh, Jesus is, is kind of in the category of, um, of more like a placebo. Like, look, whether or not it's true is not really that important. If it kind of makes you happy, it's sort of fine. It's kind of like, it reminds me of, um, years ago, there was this show that you may have heard of called American Idol, and it's still, it's still traveling on, uh, despite itself, but, um, but I don't know if you remember, years, it must have been probably early on in the seasons, there was a, um, there was a guy called William Hung. And he, he came to prominence because during the audition, for, if you're not familiar with the show, the first few episodes are always auditions. And there's only two types of auditions. There's extraordinarily talented and extraordinarily not talented. It's probably the most generous way to put it. And, um, and the producers like it that way because those are the most interesting kind of auditions to watch. And William Hung was kind of more down the not talented side. And he was one of those people who was, for whatever reason, maybe he had a really supportive family or whatever it was, was blissfully unaware of his inability to sing. And so he gets up to do Ricky Martin's She Bangs. And, uh, and needless to say, it did not bang. But he, um, he really, he went hard. And the, the judges did their thing where they kind of implode with laughter for a while and that sort of thing. But the one thing that was different about William's story is that afterwards, someone came up with the idea of like, look, what if we just took, like, made his dreams come true? Just like, just, let's just go with the idea that he thinks is a great singer and we'll go along with that and we'll give him like a 20-piece band and backup dancers and just go all out and release a single. And so they did. So he played the halftime show at a Warriors game. He sold 200,000 copies of his version of She Bangs. So it was unbelievable. But part of me as I was watching some of this unfold, part of me found it like amusing and entertaining and all that, but then part of me felt like, is this just actually kind of like a really almost mean high school prank but on steroids? Like, oh, does, does, the, the question that was running through my mind was, does he know that everyone is kind of enjoying his music sort of ironically. But then I guess the other question was, well, like, would it matter? If he has no idea and he's happy and he thinks he's a star, well, more power to him. I wonder for you, if you were him and you had no idea that people were kind of more laughing at you than with you, would you want to know or would you rather continue with the fantasy that everything was fine? 
So I reckon when it comes to your worldview, most of us want to know that it's actually true. Because we suspect that eventually the truth is going to come out, right? And look, for William in his career, that is what happened, that eventually the record sales dwindled, of course, and he became, I think, reasonably self-aware and in a pretty self-deprecating way that, uh, that he wasn't a great singer. It all worked out fine. But for you, what you believe about life and meaning and what's true, I imagine you want to know that it really is true, that it really does matter, because we suspect that if it's not, that it's not going to last. When you think about Christianity or Jesus or his claims... I wonder if you think, is it just the kind of thing where, look, it's for people who are just into that sort of thing. There isn't any evidence to it. You've just got to be a person who sort of has faith, who's, who's into that sort of spiritually stuff. That's who it's for. But is that what Jesus said about himself? Is that how he meant to be taken? See, today, we're just really going to look at two questions as we look at who Jesus is. And the two questions are this. What does Jesus say about himself? And what evidence is there for these claims? What does Jesus say about himself? And what evidence is there for these claims? So let's start with the first one. What did Jesus say? Jesus made the most exceptional, extraordinary, outrageous claims that any human being who has ever walked the earth has made. They are unparalleled. Just look at a sample of some of the things Jesus said about who he was. I'll come up on the screen for you. Jesus said, I'm the, uh, next one along, skip along, I'm the bread of life, meaning, just one more, yeah, we'll get to old Alistair in a tick, um, <clears throat> but Jesus said things like, I'm the bread of life, meaning that if you have ever hungered for anything, if you have ever felt like things just didn't last or weren't satisfying, he says, I claim to be that satisfaction that you were actually looking for. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That means Jesus didn't claim that he, like other religious teachers, knew the way or he could point you to the way, but that he actually was the way, that to know him meant you knew the way. He claims to be able to give freedom. You know, in our culture, we enjoy more freedoms than probably any culture previous, and yet many of us still long to be free in some sense. Jesus says, I can fulfill that. He claims to give rest. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That means rest from all your tensions, conflicts, worries, stresses, anxieties. He says, I won't just give you rest for your body. He says, I will give you rest for your soul. He who finds me will find rest. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen God. He claimed to be God in the flesh, walking among us, experiencing everything that we experience, from boredom through to suffering through to death. He even said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even if he dies. I mean, these are, these are extraordinary claims. I mean, that's, that's what we finished off last week, right? That the claims that Jesus made really leave you in the point where you have to make a verdict on it. The idea that he was just a moral teacher doesn't really fit because these things, unless he really was God, are insane claims or just outright lies, I mean, how is it that one person could be all these things? Imagine even for you, you may be thinking, look, there is, there is so much wrong with all of those claims there. I, I don't even know where to start. But maybe the first place to start, or the first question that might even come up, or there often does, is how do we even know that this is what Jesus said? Isn't it the kind of thing that, look, he probably was a guy who lived an extraordinary life. He really impacted a bunch of the lives around him. 
But after that, the stories just blew way out of proportion. They were exaggerated way beyond control. And so that's how we have what we, what we have currently in the Bible, these, these exceptional claims about a person who was probably a little bit less than all these things. How do we know that what Jesus said is actually what we have recorded in the Bible? Well, to, to go a bit deeper into that, historian Alistair McGrath is going to run us through a couple of these things quickly. So if you wanted to pay attention to this, we'll come back together in just a moment after looking at a few of the claims about the authority of Scripture. Textual criticism examines a number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900. And that makes a 1300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript. And we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous history of Rome, a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to the New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. Look, it is hard to argue with a scholar with a British accent like that. That's a, a very authoritative. But you, you, you get the drift as we were going through it. When you talk about historical documents, uh, the Bible stands up to historical criticism. That These are A1 documents that we can be as sure of this as of any other historical documents, that this is a recording of what Jesus said. And so if, we, if we've landed at that point, that these are the claims that Jesus made, he said these extraordinary things, the next question is, well then, is there any evidence that you should actually believe it? I mean, the fact that Jesus said, was recorded to have said and do extraordinary things doesn't mean that as a modern, rational, scientific person that you are therefore compelled to actually believe it, right? And that's usually one of the most significant objections to the story of Jesus. The idea that, look, you, you can't really, there isn't really any evidence for it. You've just got to either have faith in him or you don't. 
Because really, many people find that the idea that there were miracles, and particularly the miracle, the mother of all miracles, that Jesus claimed to have risen personally from the dead, that he died bodily and rose again, is the biggest one, really. And that as modern people, often it's the case that people think, look, how could you with a straight face claim to believe things like that? Richard Dawkins, uh, who is probably one of the most outspoken sort of atheist voices in the last two decades, said this about this very issue. So the 19th century is the last time when it was possible for an educated person to admit believing in miracles like the virgin birth without embarrassment. When pressed, many educated Christians are too loyal to deny the virgin birth and the resurrection. But it embarrasses them because their rational minds know that it's absurd, so they would much rather not be asked. Is that the case? That actually for, for people who actually believe this stuff, they believe it, but they know that there's not a lot of credibility to it, so they'd rather not be pressed on it. It's a bit like being an adult rollerblader. It's okay to do, but you just hope nobody brings it up in conversation. Sorry if you are a rollerblader. We can talk about that later. Anyway, but following on from this, is that really the case? That someone who is rational or scientific really would have to believe this stuff in spite of science rather than in, in sync with it. What well, isn't the case? Eminent scientists like Professor William Phillips, who's a, a physics Nobel Prize winner, or John Pokinghorn, who's a quantum physicist, Francis Collins, who headed up the Human Genome Project, are all people who believe these claims that Jesus made about miracles and the resurrection from the dead and don't see it as incompatible with being a rational, scientific person. These are people who are eminent in their field. But Why? Because the laws of science don't actually contradict miracles. It's a false contradiction to say that the laws of science and miracles are kind of in diametric opposition. The truth is laws of science are inductive. We make observations about patterns and then predictions based on those observations. But those predictions don't guarantee that it's going to be a result. David Hume famously argued that just because the sun rises every day doesn't mean that it always will. And he was not convinced of Jesus or him being a... uh, He was not a believer. C.S. Lewis, the ever-quotable C.S. Lewis, kind of sums up the whole issue in this illustration. He says this, If this week I put a thousand pounds in the drawer of my desk, add two thousand next week, and another thousand the week thereafter, the laws of arithmetic allow me to predict that the next time I come to my drawer, I shall find four thousand pounds. But suppose when I next open the drawer, I find only one thousand pounds. What shall I conclude? That the laws of arithmetic have been broken? Certainly not. I might more reasonably conclude that some thief has broken the laws of the state and stolen 3,000 pounds out of my drawer. One thing it would be ludicrous to claim is that the laws of arithmetic make it impossible to believe in the existence of such a thief or of the possibility of his intervention. On the contrary, it is the normal workings of these laws that have exposed the existence and activity of the thief. It's not anti-scientific to believe in miracles. And in fact, if God were to walk the earth, if there was one person who, with any kind of logic, would be able to subvert the laws that he created, it would be God. But even if it is logically possible, in the far corners of possibility, that a miracle possibly could happen, that doesn't mean that it did. That doesn't mean that Jesus necessarily did do miracles or rise from the dead. So let's see, let's go with the biggest one, with the resurrection. The claim that Jesus rose from the dead, 
and that this was witnessed by people, and those people then told other people, and Christianity exploded from there. Let's see whether or not there is any evidence that we can hold to 2,000 years later to demonstrate that this really happened, that it isn't something that you just have to believe or not believe based on a whim. Let's go through first some of the stones that people have thrown against this idea of a resurrection. There are probably five prevailing kind of theories about what maybe happened instead of a genuine, miraculous resurrection. And the first one is a wrong tomb theory. Uh, the wrong tomb theory states that the, the women who are recorded to have first witnessed Jesus' resurrection were overcome by emotion and went to the wrong tomb. So this was obviously something that a man has come up with, anyway. But uh, the, the theory is that they were so overwhelmed by things that they just went to the wrong address. That tomb was empty. They thought, oh my gosh, he's risen from the dead. They've gone back and told everyone, and it's blown up from there. But the problem with this theory is it would have been so, so easy to disprove. If you simply went to the wrong grave, anyone who rejected your worldview, and remember the earliest Christians were persecuted for following Jesus. People wanted to prove it wrong. If you really just had the wrong address, it would have been very easy to point to the right one. This one really doesn't hold a lot of water. But the second one is called the hallucination theory. And Dr. William McNeil articulates the position in his book, A World History. He writes, The Roman authorities in Jerusalem arrested and crucified Jesus. But soon afterwards, the dispirited apostles gathered in an upstairs room and suddenly felt again the heartwarming presence of their master. This seemed absolutely convincing evidence that Jesus' death on the cross had not been the end but the beginning. The apostles bubbled over with excitement and tried to explain to all who would listen that it, what had happened. So the idea was that Jesus had died, his nearest followers were completely grief-stricken, they've gathered together to console one another about his death, they have this sense among them that there's this, this presence, it kind of, kind of blows out into a, a hallucination that actually Jesus really has risen from the dead, and then they just spread it from there. But there are some major problems with this theory. One is that hallucinations generally seem to happen for, uh, to a, a particular type of person, someone very imaginative uh, and someone who is um, who's kind of prone to hallucination. But more than that, hallucinations are often very much subjective and individual. The idea that a number of people, a group of people, could all have the same hallucination would be quite extraordinary. That would be an, a very unique psychiatric phenomenon. But in the Bible, the claim is that not just a group of people, but 500 people had met Jesus bodily risen. The idea that that many people would have the exact same hallucination would almost be as miraculous as the resurrection itself. The idea that this could have happened and spread about is very, very difficult. And so the next one would be the swoon theory. That's why people are sometimes favoured towards this one. This is the idea that perhaps Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Swoon theory is the idea that when Jesus was being crucified, which is the way in which he was executed, that he, under the immense stress, under the shock, under the blood loss, collapsed and passed out, that he was taken down from the cross, mistakenly believed to be dead, put in a tomb, and then after that presented himself as alive. But this one has some extremely difficult barriers to overcome. The first one is this. Roman soldiers really didn't have a lot to do with their lives, especially if you're appointed to execute people. 
That was your main job, and they were very, very good at it. Even in the Gospels we have, it was recorded that afterwards they thrust a spear through the side of a victim to see whether or not the blood separated, because that would be a sign that they were genuinely dead. They were very good at executing people. They knew when someone was dead. But let's give it some legs. Let's imagine that these were the most incompetent executioners who have ever lived, and it was their first day, and they put a work experience kit on it, and he just totally muffed it. And so Jesus has been taken down from the cross, being mistaken for being dead. That would mean that he would have to have survived two nights in approaching sub-zero temperatures with wounds to hands, head and feet, plus the beatings that he'd received from before that. So he's just a mess of a man, then woke up in the tomb, realized what had happened, managed to push a several several ton stone away, beat up the Roman guards who were there, and then present himself looking like death warmed up to his disciples and say, I'm the risen Lord Jesus, and they believed him. It would be incredibly difficult. David F. Strauss, who is an opponent of Christianity, scoffs at this idea himself. He says, It is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the grave, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who still at last yielded to his sufferings, could have given the disciples the impression that he was the conqueror over death and the grave and the prince of life, an impression that would lay at the bottom of their future ministry. And so we come to the last two, the stolen body theory. And so for those who have kind of worked through the previous ones and say, look, maybe the idea is that somebody stole the body. Now, in doing that, you'd have to work out, look, who, who would have the motivation to do it? The people who would be most motivated to do it potentially would be the disciples. Maybe they believed that Jesus really was the Messiah, the chosen one. They wanted to prove that it was the case. And so they were the ones who took his body and told everyone that he rose from the dead. But one of the issues that we'll come to in just a moment is that they all died for what they believed. And it would be an extraordinary thing for that many people to have died for something that they made up. That none of them, at the point of death, would have confessed, you know what, we just made it all up. It was a complete sham. They had nothing to gain from it. They didn't get rich or famous. There was nothing from it. And if it wasn't them, I mean, even if they were, how they would have the power to overcome Roman centurions and steal the body would be an extraordinary feat on its own. But if it wasn't them, who would? The Romans didn't want to prove Jesus to be resurrected. They were trying to put down a movement. That's why Jesus was killed. The Jewish leaders felt the same. They had no motivation to steal the body. The idea that the body was stolen is not a compelling one. And so the last one, and it's one that's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, one of the books we have in the Bible, is the idea that the soldiers fell asleep. The soldiers fell asleep, and um, while they were asleep, the, the disciples somehow managed to move the stone and take the body themselves. But again, as we've looked at before, the motivation to do that would be slim. To do that and then lay down their lives for, for this very cause is an unlikely human motivation. And so really what we come to is, well, what evidence is there for the resurrection that this actually happened? And as I mentioned, these are, there are three historical facts that are not the opinions of people who are inclined towards it. They are just facts that need to be reckoned with, that are established historical facts that happened around this period that really are hard to explain without the resurrection. And these are the three. The first is that it all happened in the place where people first became Christians. And the reason this is significant 
is because if you wanted to if you wanted to make up a lie about someone, the worst way to do it is to do it in the very place where you claim it happened. Because this is the place where people can prove easily that something was not that was or was simply untrue. If uh, if anyone has, has anyone been following Making a Murderer season two? Just, can I just get a quick show of hands as to how much background work I have to do on this? Okay, all right. Well, for, yeah, again, for the both of you, this is going to be a great illustration. But for everyone else, we'll do a bit of legwork. So this is, this is kind of uh, tracking the story of Stephen, Stephen Avery, a man who was wrongfully convicted, released, and then charged with the murder of a woman in his town, uh, who the series is making the point that he was wrongfully convicted of this second crime. And has been in prison for somewhere in the, I think, about 13 years now on this second conviction. And, uh, and team after team, lawyer after lawyer, have been trying to get him off the charge. But it's interesting watching uh, season two. So he's got a new lawyer who's an absolute weapon of a person. And she's, she's now going around and, and kind of re-examining all the evidence. And going back through the case, it's quite extraordinary in terms of like interviewing witnesses, in terms of examining evidence that actually being there in the town, even for something that happened over 15 years ago, it's quite, I mean, easy probably isn't the word, but for anyone who is motivated and wants to find out the truth, the evidence is still there. If there has been a crime that's been concealed, if there's a a framing of this man that's been concealed, it is still possible to disprove it because they have access to everything that is there in the area. That's the very same for the claim about Jesus. The first Christians became Christians in Jerusalem, exactly where the disciples said all of this had happened, where Jesus died and rose again and represented himself to witnesses. And so if you wanted to say, hey, look, so-and-so actually met the risen Lord Jesus, you'd be able to go down the road and actually ask that person. If you really wanted to make up something as extraordinary as this, your best bet would be to say it happened in some backwater town. You don't know the name of the place, but trust me, it really happened. That's the first fact. The second one is that the first Christians were Jewish. Now that may not seem like an extraordinary thing to you, but the reason that is extraordinary is because these were the people who were the least likely to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Because they had believed that this Messiah, this King, this Chosen One, was going to be a ruler. And what happened to Jesus? He died like a criminal. A humiliating death. They had every reason to think, this guy is, there is no, if it's going to be anyone, it is not this guy. It's, think about it like this, going back to making a murderer, who would be the least, who would be the people who would be hardest to convince that Stephen Avery was innocent? It would be the victim's family. They're the ones with the most at stake, who are the least likely to believe it. If they were to, if they were to turn on the evidence, you would have to say that would be pretty compelling evidence. And it's the same for this. Jewish people were the first to believe in Jesus and they were the least likely to do it. They were the hardest to convince and yet it exploded through the Jewish community and then beyond. But the third one is this, is that Christians died for what they believed. It would have been probably harder to believe their cause if, if making up all this stuff about Jesus made you rich and powerful and influential, you'd say, well, look, you've got every motivation to lie about what happened. But none of them did. In fact, almost all of Jesus' disciples died for telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. 
Peter was crucified, Andrew was crucified, James was executed by sword, Philip was crucified, Bartholomew was crucified, Thomas was killed by spear, Matthew was executed by sword, James was crucified, Thaddeus was shot through with arrows, and Simon was crucified. All of these were people who followed Jesus and were so convinced that it was true that he had power over life and death that they were willing to stake everything on it. Those are three massive facts that are hard to explain without there being an actual resurrection. The last piece of evidence that I wanted to put to you was, I think, my personal experience of coming to know Jesus. When I was, when I was 17, I had known about Jesus for a long time, but at 17 was when I actually understood him as Lord and King. I'd say for my life, I, I wasn't, my life was not a mess Things were fine for me. I, I enjoyed my life. I had a great group of friends. I was enjoying partying. I was enjoying everything that was kind of going on. I wasn't walking around with like some kind of God-shaped hole in my heart that I was looking for him to fill. And so finally coming to understand who Jesus was, was like finding something that I wasn't looking for. And the, the easiest way I can explain it was like this. When, um, so my wife and I have been married for seven years now. Thank you. Um, but <laughs> thank you. There we go. All right. Uh, but um, we, so our, our families both went on holidays every year. My family always went north coast and hers went south. And before going there, I used to just gently mock her about it. Only because in my head, I was like, look, on a summer holiday, why would you go south? Why would you go where it's colder? It, all evidence points to the fact that you would go north. Unless you hate life and joy and, and happiness and all those things. Why would you ever go south? And she's like, look, you've, just, you've got to experience it for yourself. And so the first year I went down there, the family stays right near Jarvis Bay. So if you've ever been there, you kind of know what I'm talking about. In Jarvis Bay, all the beaches, they're immaculate. They're all white sand. The water is perfectly still. It is, it is pretty unbelievable. There's usually dolphins going through. We saw a whale, several whales this year. And so when we got there and she actually asked me how it was, Shamefacedly, I had to admit, I was like, yeah, this is, this is a lot better. Especially given that the first year that we went there, at my family's holiday, there was like sharks and rips, and like it was just a disaster. You know, it was probably the worst year for a comparison. But, um, but it was the case that I thought, like, before going there, I was thinking, look, look, Australia just has premium beaches. We're spoiled, right? What's one beach over another? But actually going there, it is pretty overwhelming. It is an incredible thing to take in. And like, that is the nearest to what I can experience of what it was like to find life in Jesus. It wasn't something that I was especially looking for. I thought, look, I had still had big questions about life, but I wasn't, I wasn't thinking that it was going to land on Jesus. But when I actually understood who he was, it blew me away completely. To know that he really was Lord, that these claims that he made, that he was the bread of life, he's where you find satisfaction and meaning, that in him is rest and rest for your soul, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, it absolutely blew me away. I mean, there is no one like Jesus, no one who has made the claims that Jesus had made. There was no one like Jesus who was tough enough that soldiers were afraid of him, and yet children were drawn to his kindness. There was no one like Jesus who had so much integrity that religious leaders couldn't fault him, even though they wanted to. And yet sinners and outcasts and prostitutes felt dignity in his presence, not, con- not condemnation. He never lied or cheated. He didn't pander to what people wanted him to say. He spoke the truth and he spoke it strongly. And he died without cowering to earthly powers. 
and rose again to demonstrate that he has power over death. There is no one like Jesus. But I realize that may not be at all compelling for you. But no matter what kind of, how skeptical you are about it, there are facts about Jesus that need to be reckoned with, that need explaining or need a counter-explanation. I would urge you, if you haven't taken the time to do that, this series is going to be a great opportunity. We're continuing on next week with why it is that Jesus had to die. Because really, all of his message hangs on that. But it's, these are things that have to be reckoned with. One man, N.T. Wright, says this on Jesus' life. He says, how can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to walk and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest reality in the world or it's a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. Most of us, unable to cope with saying either of these things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. I would urge you, if you have not made a verdict on the evidence about Jesus, to do so. He puts us in the position where he is either a liar and a scammer or Lord of all, but nothing in between. He's either the most extraordinary or the most deceptive claims ever made. And it is worth investigating. I'm going to pray. Father God, we praise you that you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus. That to have met Jesus is to meet God himself. And Father, we pray that as we look into these things, you'd open our hearts and minds to understand who Jesus was, to be blown away by this man who walked on earth with courage, with integrity, who spoke the truth in love, and yet didn't hold back. And Father, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see the enormity of what it means that Jesus would die for us in our place, that we might have life and life eternal in him. And Father, we pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to take a moment to reflect, and then after that, Gav's going to get up and let us know what's happening.